Internal border controls are racist, um, and I think that's really important to say, particularly at this moment in time when we're being told that racism doesn't exist. Um, but it's also not enough to say that simply that they're racist, right? They are racist, and their functioning is racist, and they specifically target racial racialized people, but they also racialize people in their functioning, right? So they kind of algorithmically sort people and people with particular qualities who come from particular countries, etc., are marked out for particular forms of treatment that other people aren't. And that's really important. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast series. I'm your host, Nathan. Today I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Median, who's a lecturer in sociology at The Open University. Catherine's research interests span gender and feminist studies, political sociology, and social and political theory, with a specific focus on power, surveillance and governance, and the global and local connections between gendered and racial oppression and resistance to it. Her current research, which is why we've invited her, and I'm delighted she could join us, examines the development and use of internal border controls as a form of racialized governance. So welcome, Catherine. Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Great. So let's let's talk about your your current research. Um, you say that the, the hostile environment is not a new phenomenon. And it's always been with us through what you term internal borders. So talk to us about when and why these borders, these internal borders, have been created. Yeah, thank you for the question. So firstly, a couple of things. I don't think that internal borders have always been with us, okay. or maybe not necessarily, but um, I guess I haven't gone back far enough to know that. Okay. But they definitely predate what we're currently calling the hostile environment. Mm. Um, although the hostile environment does have some unique qualities to it. Okay. Um, so what isn't new is the presence of internal border controls within Britain. Mm -hmm. And by internal borders, I'm referring to the process by which um, people, usually racialized people, are asked to demonstrate proof of immigration and nationality status mm -hmm. in order to access welfare, employment and services like bank accounts, marriage licenses, healthcare, and so on. Right. as well as broader processes of sort of state-sanctioned racial profiling led by the police and others. So over the past couple of years, I've conducted archival research um, into the history of internal border controls within Britain, mm -hmm. with a particular focus on the 70s and 80s. So for example, they may go back before then, but that's just kind of been my current focus. Right. Um, so while the hostile environment that we're currently dealing with is often framed by the state and by some campaigners mm -hmm. as a new phenomenon, whereby borders have moved from ports of entry, like airports and ferry ports, mm -hmm. um, internal to within Britain, I've been learning about this kind of older presence of internal borders. So for example, around the time of the introduction of the 1981 Nationality Act, which reconstituted British citizenship around lines of descent to the island or sort of the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. A number of internal borders were introduced. Um, for example, 
There was NHS um, passport checks and charges um, for migrants, very similar to what we're seeing today. Um, the 1985 Housing Act also introduced an idea of no recourse to public funds um, for housing provision. And the Social Security Act of 1980 introduced nationality stipulations that meant that people were often being asked to produce their passport before receiving Social Security, um, which today is sort of universal credit. <laughs> Um, and at the same time, passport checks for employment and national insurance numbers at this time in the late 70s and 80s were becoming kind of more and more entrenched within border controls. So you had to show papers before you were given a national insurance number um, and passport checks for employment, which is something we take for granted today, mm. were also being introduced in this period. So internal borders aren't new. But what I'm personally interested in is how they were resisted, because mm. if we're framing the hostile environment as something that's new, we're not looking into the past and asking what resistance to earlier internal borders looked like. So I've been kind of researching some of the campaigns that arose to resist internal borders in the 1980s. Okay. And I'm particularly interested in campaigns and forms of resistance that took an anti-colonial and anti-imperial framework, mm. um, because a lot of what we see today really relies on a kind of nationalism um, and a recourse to the British state. You often hear people saying, you know, what about British hospitality or... Um, uh, you know, the, the NHS or the welfare state is for everyone. It's part of Britain's yeah. universal values, um, which kind of reifies a nationalism and it stops us from connecting what's happening here to what's happening elsewhere. Right. So I've been looking at how campaigners in the 80s were trying to do that. Okay. Um, it's very, it's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm particularly interested to try and delve deeper into um, the 1981 uh, Immigration and Nationality Act. Which, is that where you think these internal borders start becoming really visible? Because there's some ancestral clauses in there which take away citizenship from people who were in the, in the, in the colonies and only gives it to people who have a grandparent who's, who's at least born in Britain. And these tend to be mostly people who are white. Yeah. So there's... An intensification of internal border controls around the 1981 Nationality Act, right. like there was for the 2014 and 16 National. Uh, Immigration Acts, which introduced a hostile environment. So you definitely see an intensification okay. in 1981. Right. But um, a lot of the campaigners in the 1980s were tracing um, the border controls that they were resisting to the 1971 um, Immigration um, Acts which um, first began to introduce internal checks within Britain to keep track of migrants. Um, but 1981 is definitely a moment of intensification in this history. Okay, so this, this is effectively, there's some form of surveillance that is, is happening to, to minority communities. Do you, can you expand on what, what purpose does this serve? And why, why is the state uh, pursuing this path? Yeah, of course. Um, so I think there's many reasons why. So I'll just talk about a couple um, that I, I'm specifically looking at or, or thinking yeah. about at the moment. Mm -hmm. So firstly, on the surveillance. So if you're tracking minority group, minoritized groups, right, and you're delimiting their access to services and you're identifying them so that you're trying to ensure they can't access housing, healthcare, employment, domestic violence services, and so on, then state surveillance and racist state surveillance is taking place and whole sections of the population are being subjected to surveillance. Um, and these borders are being enforced in a few key ways through digital surveillance, 
Um, and this is something older as well, right? Um, we're often sort of talking about digital surveillance at the moment, but we're not tracing its earlier histories. In 1981, there was data sharing agreements in place between the Home Office, the NHS and other welfare services that meant that there was digital surveillance taking place by the Home Office. Okay. Um, and of course, and you've just got broad like racial profiling, asking to see people's papers who don't appear as white or who sound foreign, right? Um, and what do I think the functions of this are? Well, I think that one of the key functions is to create a colour bar um, throughout, well, one of the key effects and functions in many ways, um, which kind of allows these borders to kind of create white Britain, is to divide the working class and create a colour bar through the welfare state. Um, and it's important not to lose sight of this. So internal borders like charges for NHS care, the NHS surcharge, not being able to open a bank account, not being able to apply for certain jobs because they won't sponsor your visa or you're not eligible or the salary requirements don't meet. These practices divide workers and they create also create categories of like the lump and proletariat, those who don't have access to any formal structures of employment. Mm. Um, and they create these categories of deserving and undeserving, right? Like so, certain people are deserving of access to services because they've paid their taxes um, or because they were born here, they sort of have more of a right and other people are coming here and taking those sort of services away from them. So you kind of see this entwining of the logics of austerity that there's not enough to go round and we need to limit access to services along with this kind of xenophobia. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the functions of this um, is to privilege white workers. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, it's 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 extraordinary what you what you're talking about. So I'm really curious to understand from you that the the rules that are brought into effect by legislation, the framework of this legislation, do you think that that legislation enables racism? Because if, if there's all these internal borders and you've got some enforcement which is being done by citizens, is the direct effect that these institutions are in effect, you know, have racism and enabled by, by legislation? Yeah. Internal border controls are racist. Um, and I think that's really important to say, particularly at this moment in time when we're being told that racism doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, but it's also not enough to say that simply that they're racist, right? They are racist and their functioning is racist mm -hmm. and they specifically target racial, racialized people, but they also racialize people in their functioning, right? right? So they kind of algorithmically sort people and people with particular qualities who come from particular countries, etc., are marked out for particular forms of treatment that other people aren't. And that's really important. So they are racist, but I don't think it's enough just to say, oh, this is racist, mm. right? We have to also ask how they, how, how do they function? Who do they serve? And how are they being put to use? And that's mm. one of the reasons I think it's really important to kind of think about the ways in which they divide workers, um, the ways in which they target specific populations um, and, and consider this kind of colour bar that gets formalised through these policies, which means it affects all of us, right? Um, because it's also part of a class struggle. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I think it's really important to kind of frame this as a worker's struggle as well, particularly as workers are being pitted against each other. Mm -hmm. So you've got teachers, you've got 
nurses, doctors, etc., being asked to survey other populations, even as those workers might be from those populations themselves. So you've got this real fracturing um, of the population. Yeah, and then it's sort of like a, a very grand divide and rule strategy that's uh, that's taking yeah. place. I mean, the the last internal borders that most people will probably remember um, were probably in apartheid South Africa, where there was a system of of pass laws where people who are black or of African origin. Um, couldn't go to places where where white people t- could go. This is slightly different. This is different in that the racism isn't as overt, and as you as you suggest, sometimes it's being impl- implemented by minoritized communities. Can you talk to us a little bit about is there is there anything any similarity that you see there with apartheid South Africa, with these yep. internal borders? That's a really interesting question um, because it's something I've been looking at through one of the campaigns that I've been researching. But so, firstly, I'll say that I, so apartheid pass laws probably weren't the most recent form of internal borders. I think we're seeing forms of internal control on the rise, but they are an example okay. of, in, of an internal system of racialized passport control mm-hmm. um, that sought to regulate labour, enact land dispossession, dispossess black people of their land, mm-hmm. um, indigenous people, um, and control people through gendered divisions um, of labour in sort of seeking to maintain a white supremacist apartheid state. Right. Um, and and, and are very you know important to the functioning of apartheid in South Africa. Um, and South Africa's past laws are sort of a technology of governance and they do predate apartheid rule. So they were first introduced um, in the Cape Colony, um, I think by the British and the Dutch. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so what, yeah, so as you described, what they did was they required um, racialized people, black people, but also other pe- populations who were marked out as colored um, by the apartheid regime to carry um, internal passports with them at all times in order to access different zones of land, white land, in order to access employment. They sort of managed urbanisation by allowing black workers mm. to come into urban areas to work mm. for white people, and then they had to leave after. So their past was almost like a sort of passing through a checkpoint. Um, and so they were central to a labour system, right? And they were also a way to both maintain access to cheap black labour, mm. while also dispossessing those black people of their land. Um now, I'm of the opinion that it's not necessarily, for me, it's not helpful to ask, mm-hmm. um, is this apartheid that we're living through in Britain or is it not, or is X, Y, and Z apartheid? Yeah. But rather to ask how these particular forms of governance have endured over time. They've sort of manifested differently in different places and they've inspired different kind of regimes. Um, so I don't think that in Britain right now we are living under apartheid rule. Um, but I do think that a relationship exists between the form that form of governance, past laws, and what we're seeing now. Um, and I think we can also draw parallels between other systems of control. And this is one of the reasons I'm really interested in resistance that's anti-imperial and anti-colonial, because I think it allows us to kind of generate these connections, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, in occupied Palestine, Palestinian people live under a permit regime where they have to carry um, permits with them in order to access different land under Israeli colonial occupation, Mm -hmm. which is both a way of dispossessing them of their land, but also allowing the Israeli state to access cheap Palestinian um, labour 
we see these kind of worker um, visa regimes across the global north and actually some places in the global south um, where migrant workers, for example, in the Gulf, in Dubai and places like that, um, have to kind of access passes in order to to access work, etc., etc. So we are kind of seeing a rise of these kinds of internal bordering processes that are very much connected to work. Um, and there are lots of academics, actually, and historians who are kind of drawing out the links between these different systems. And I think that's a really productive way to go. Right. So one of the campaigns that I've been looking at from yeah. the 1980s was called No Pass Laws Here. So they weren't saying that the internal borders from 1980s Britain were necessarily pass laws, but they were saying that they, they took a similar form and that they didn't want them to formalise into a kind of pass law system in Britain. Um, and so they were called no pass laws here and they kind of drew equivalences between what was going on under apartheid and what was happening here where racialised people were increasingly being asked to show their papers in order to access um, state benefits, the NHS, employment, hospitals, etc. So I do think that there are some historical links to be drawn out. And I think it's important that we don't forget these other um, regimes of internal passport control, um, even as I don't think we live under apartheid, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that's, 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 that's very clear. So I, I do wonder, because you, you're, you appear to link these internal borders to maintaining a class system that... Um, categorizes particular workers and particularly migrant labor in a particular way to serve to serve the system so do you think that there isn't any way of actually dismantling this system because it, it appears to be foolproof it keeps on recycling itself i definitely believe and i have like i feel like i can't do this work without believing that this can one day no longer exist, right? So right. I'm definitely not resigned to like this being a foolproof system. Yeah. Um, if anything, I feel like the people ruling continually show that they are fools and that there are gaps in what they are doing. Yeah. So I definitely think that there is room for resistance. And I think that what, what can be done really mm. depends on your specific location. Mm. Um, for example, um, like if you're a worker mm. who's being asked to survey other workers, you can think about not complying, right? Like, I, and I think there needs to be some unity across workers, both workers who have secure immigration status mm. and those who don't, those who are being called on, on to survey others and those who are being asked to demand their papers. And some people are living in far more precarious situations in Britain than mm. others. But I think it's really important that we all think about what we can do. And there are some amazing resources out there as well right now. Mm. Um, and campaigns that people can get involved in if they're interested in learning more about how they can refuse to kind of comply with the hostile environment. There's campaigns like the Patients Not Passports campaign who on their website have an amazing toolkit that allows you to sort of get involved and see how you can be involved in resisting the implementation of border controls within healthcare. Um, in Britain, there's been campaigns against um, the checking of immigration status in schools. Um, there's campaigns like Unis Resist Border Controls um, that are specifically campaigning against a hostile environment within edu higher educational institutions in Britain. So there are definitely people doing important work to resist. But what I believe we really need is a kind of mass movement um, in which, and, and I think that unions could potentially play a really important role in that if they stood up to the kind of the task because i think that um implementing a refusal to comply 
um, has to be one way in which we can win. And actually, that's something we can learn on from the past, because when um, NHS charges for migrant health care were introduced in 1982, mm. um, a policy that looks really similar to the ones we're being faced with today, um, there was mass non-compliance. And actually, in the end, it was hospitals themselves who actually came out and refused to comply. And that was one of the reasons the policy kind of fell to the side. Right. Um, so I do believe we can win, and I really hope we do. <laughs> right, okay. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating, it's fascinating. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about what happened with Windrush. So when Theresa May introduces this system that she's calling the hostile environment, she says at the time that she was creating this system in order to stop illegal immigration. What then happens is that people who are citizens but can't prove, can't prove that they have a right to be here through a piece of paperwork or a passport of some sort, end up being deported. One would have thought that, given citizens have been deported, that the act the, on the statute book that brought, you know, that led to, to citizens being deported would have been repealed. Mm -hmm. From your research and looking back at the 1970s and the 90s, 1980s, why is it that after this wrong, which needs to be righted, that legislation which made some citizens get deported still remains in place? Why do you think that is? Mm. It's important to say that legislation is still allowing people to be deported. And it's a really difficult question because obviously... I can't see into the minds of the government government, mm. and I sort of don't know what their plans are, but mm. I'm not convinced that hardship, that the hardship caused by government policy necessarily correlates to them wanting to change legislation. Right. It, you know, it's clear that these people don't care mm. or if anything, that it's actually working as intended because they never wanted these people to stay in this country or something along those lines. Yeah. You know, and the so-called Windrush scandal is ongoing people are still struggling to access compensation mm. and people who were wrongly deported are still fighting to re-enter um, and flights carrying deportees to other nations are still regularly taking place right mm. um but i also think there's something deeper to unpick here mm. um, around rightful citizenship and illegality okay. um because one of the kind of main hinges or calls for justice around the kind of Windrush generation mm. is that members of that generation came here as citizens they came here as citizens of empire and they're not illegal mm. and they're thus deserving of full citizenship and um i agree yeah these people this should not be happening but this maintains the category of being illegal because it means that they are not illegal but other people are and so that then it still creates a kind of class of people that we can rightfully deport, that we can rightfully subjugate. Um, and th that means that all of those people who have come to Britain, who are not citizens of empire, um, who weren't bestowed that category, people from Ghana, Algeria, Sudan, people from so many places, yeah. are still worthy of deportation, right? They're still seen as worthy of deportation because they don't have the same recourse to citizenship that members of the Windrush generation do. And so just to be clear, once again, like all members of the Windrush generation should have full access to citizenship and they should not be deported. And anyone who has, if they want to return, should be brought here now. Yeah. But, and, and you know, this ongoing scandal is horrific, but we can't give certain migrants 
primacy because of their relationship to empire that was bestowed on them by that empire. I think we need a much more expansive kind of abolitionist view of the state here. We need to imagine this island beyond border controls and surveillance and like who was topic like had this kind of privilege of of empire because it's, it's really concerning to me that we're kind of still maintaining this idea that they're not illegal but some people are yeah um so so that now when we're seeing chartered flights to west africa to mm. eastern europe etc with people being deported on them mm. we're not we're not saying this is a scandal in the same way that we're saying that the windrush scandal was a scandal um and so this division between documented people and undocumented people kind of this binary is still there um and i really think we need to fight that right okay and, and given you you lecture in in sociology i'm i'm really keen to find out from you because of the way that this country is structured with its hierarchy of of class aren't these things inevitable aren't they inevitable inevitable because those who are at the top of the class system want to stay there and they want to make sure that anybody who is new to this country um, starts right from the bottom. Mm. So isn't it inevitable that we would have systems like this? I like to think not, but it's also important to remember that it's a class system, but it doesn't mean that everyone who comes to this country is placed at the bottom, right? Because mm. you've got high net worth individuals who can buy themselves to citizenship or visas all over the world because of their investments in the country, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it's a specific system that's targeting low income and like the global poor, essentially. Like that's who the system is targeting. Um, do I think it's inevitable? There are more of us than there are of them. Mm -hmm. There are more workers who aren't part of the global elite, right? So I like to think we've got like people power on our side. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's inevitable. I don't think this is the natural order of things. Um, but okay. um, yeah, maybe it does feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does feel like it's a, it's a very difficult struggle to fight. Um, mm. And then most recently, we've had this, the Sewell race report, um, mm. which doesn't, which shirks calling out institutional racism. Um, I wondered what your reflections on on that report were. Yeah. Um, so I'm still digesting that report. And in all honesty, I don't feel like I've got like a fully formed like take on it yet. Like it still feel, feels quite fresh. But just to say like the UK is obviously like structurally and institutionally racist. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to say that. Mm -hmm. And the report erases kind of the ongoing afterlives of enslavement and colonialism. And it also contradicts like facts on the ground, the lived experiences of migrants and racialized communities. Mm -hmm. um, and it also willfully ignores research data. And I say it willfully ignores research data because it's really clear. I've only read the report partially. I haven't read it like cover to cover. I've just read bits of it. Yeah. And then I read a lot of articles that have been written about it. Yeah. Um, and it's clear that like the data used to support their predetermined thesis, right? Because they started writing the report knowing they wanted to say that Britain was not yeah. institutionally racist. So the kind of data that they used, like to say there was no institutional racism is completely cherry picked from scholarship and organizations who actually claim to the contrary and who have been coming out in full force and saying like that they've been misrepresented. Um, it's specific relationship to border controls. There's something really interesting here because 
I think personally that there's been a more general push over the last few years to claim that the hostile environment is not racist, even when it obviously is racist, right? So what I mean is like, it's often constructed and justified through this language of like fairness and equality. So for example, it's not fair that migrants come here and use the NHS when national citizens are placed on waiting lists. It's not fair that foreigners come here and they get housed um, when British-born people are on long housing waiting lists. And this isn't just the tabloid press saying this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This is also the language used in hostile environment policy. So there's a number of policy um, consultations and briefings that were written around the introduction of NHS charges for migrant healthcare that used fairness in the title One of them was called ensuring fairness. Mm -hmm. Um, And the whole idea was like stop health tourism, stop people coming here and using the NHS. And so when you frame things through this like xenophobic meets austerity framework, there's this idea that healthcare housing and universal credit, etc. There's not enough to go around. There's this kind of like scarcity mindset. Um, And then it's really easy for those with an investment in like British nationalism to say that, oh, it's not fair for migrants to access our services and it justifies internal border controls to stop them doing it. And so it then doesn't get presented as racism. It gets presented as being really fair. Like Mm. this is only fair for the white British people. So I'm actually concerned that this whole idea that there is no institutional racism, while this report is shocking, I think we also need to deep dive into our policy and actually realise that this whole kind of rhetoric of like, this isn't racist, this is just fair, like has been there for a while. Um, And it's having real real material impacts on people's lives. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if the government has tried to frame internal borders as not racist for a while, that's something we really need to fight against. Um, And I think that it's a fight against nationalism um, as well as racism, um, because I think that these whole kind of language of like it not being fair is justified through through British nationalism. So, yeah, it's not a direct reflection of the report, but I think the report's findings are entrenched in policies. um, And we're not talking about that. Right. Okay. Um, I I do wonder, and if you if you'd indulge me with this, what sort of country um, is Britain? Because for for these kind of policies to exist, um, sometimes in in perpetuity, for decades, from periods when Britain still had an empire, to this period now, what is it? Do you think? Um, about the British psyche and the majority of the population that enables this kind of system to to persist for so long? So I think it's empire. Hmm. And I think it's the wealth generated from that. So I think that there's this kind of very um, much older imperial kind of colonial investment in both kind of ruling over and subjugating a large majority of the world's population and extracting resources from those populations, bringing those resources to here, right? So you like you can't talk about the kind of industrial revolution which made Britain modern and great without talking about the fact that that industrial revolution was predicated on the resources from colonised countries and plantations, etc. So like I think there's obviously this long history and Britain's political economy is bound up 
mm-hmm. in the kind of pillaging of the global self, of its colonies, of its empire, and of its settler colonies, uh, you know, Australia, one time the US, yeah. uh, Canada, etc. Um, and so do you, do you think the British public have a really good understanding of that? No, of that, of that no, political I don't economy. Think they've got a good understanding, but mm. I do think that they're invested in the comforts that that system brings them. Um, and so, when you're invested in the comforts of those systems, and you're used to being, even if like you're not in the best position, even if you're a working class English person, like you're still better than a working class migrant person. And mm. I think there's a real kind of invest British kind of investment in this hierarchy. Um, and I th- also think this hierarchy is what is used to justify austerity and policies that actually do wrong to those white people who are also working class. Mm. Um, and I think kind of helps create this whole category of the white working class, which is very unhelpful as a category because the working class is not white, right? The working mm. class is multiracial. And mm. so I think there's been this like wholesale kind of British historical creation of the the white British subject or Britain as white, mm-hmm. even as, as the Windrush generation remind us, we were also citizens too. Right. Um, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a fascinating answer. And just before we, we conclude, Catherine, um, I wonder what you, what you make of this whole issue of unconscious bias. Uh, the last guest that we we had on this show, Colin Prescott, from the Institute of of Race Relations, appeared to say that um, unconscious bias is like the cream on top of British racism. Do you think people have been given a a get out card? Do you think unconscious bias exists? Um, do I think unconscious bias exists? Like. To be honest, no, I, I mean, I don't really know. Um, and I think this whole, you know, industry, and it's an industry, right? Because it's yeah. like training, it's like you can undo your, if you, if you just come to understand that you have sedimented biases in your unconscious that you're not aware of, then you can make yourself unracist. So you're like individualizing kind of neoliberal individualization of the problem mm-hmm. of racism to an unconscious part of your brain that you're not aware of. But if you just become aware, then that's redress for centuries of colonialism, yeah. enslavement, etc., which is absolute rubbish. It's also rubbish because people who are perpetuating racism, in my opinion, are not doing so unconsciously. Mm. They may not be fully thinking it through, or it might be a learned prejudice, but they're not unconscious to what they're doing. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely agree with Colin, and I'm sure Colin was far more articulate on this than me, it's not like something I've researched in much detail, right. but I definitely think it provides um, a get-out clause for people. Um, it also allows people to sort of tick a box, right? Like, oh, I've done my training, so I'm fine. Like, right. you're probably not, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, yeah, and it's just an individualization of a, of a national problem that yeah. really um, isn't going to get us anywhere, but after this report, right, so so one of the one of the reasons, you know, this kind of training, you know, you go to a workplace and they're like, oh, you need to do unconscious bias training. Yeah. It's often offered because people are worried about institutional racism, mm-hmm. about racism being perpetuated within the institution. So, like, we might even, after this report, see a disappearance of even this, like, little plaster of a 
response to racism. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm not a fan of unconscious bias, but um, yeah, no, there might not even be that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, it's been a, a really fascinating conversation with you, Catherine, and, and thank you so much for, for coming on and making visible the, the architecture of, of oppression that some people suffer in, in modern day Britain. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me um, on. It's been really lovely talking to you. Great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you for listening to this episode of Still We Rise. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that Carag does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at Carag Coventry. So until the next episode of Story Rise, thanks for joining.